Good afternoon. Uh, one more time, I uh, hope that you're not uh, tired of me yet. Uh, I'm Raghi Dadarham. I'm founder and executive chairman of Beirut Institute. It's a think tank for the Arab region with global reach and whose idea is to continue a very constructive conversation amongst us so that we can fix it rather than only complain about it. Everything we do is to see how do we reach solutions and how do we go um, uh, for the next step. Uh, I am honored today to chair this very important session. I am very happy that I have three women, four women. Uh, how many are we? We have a minority. Finally, we have one man on a session rather than uh, normally one woman. So I'm glad to welcome you. Uh, I will conduct this conversation, each person alone, for about four, four or five minutes, and then I will engage everyone together. So uh, we have experts on Egypt, on uh, Libya, uh, on Tunisia and Libya and Iraq, and on Syria and on Iraq. So, and I would assume that I would, it will fall on me to see uh, if there is anything on Lebanon, simply because I come from this beautiful country, and I, it's in my heart, and I'd like to also keep it on your radar. Um, I want to first welcome uh, the Right Honorable Muna Makram Abed, uh, the American University in Cairo Distinguished Lecturer on, of Political Science, former Egyptian Shura Council, which is the Senate, of course, as a member in the Shura Council. She is also former National Council on Human Rights Committee of Social Rights and uh, the head, um, uh, also former Egyptian People's Assembly member, that is the Parliament's member. Welcome. Thank you. Can we start out with thinking Egypt uh, as being uh, a necessary ba balancing uh, country in the future of the region? Uh, there, is, there can be no balance of powers without Egypt being at the, central, uh, at the center of it. Uh, are there hurdles that are stopping Egypt from uh, leading in that way, or shall we look at the relationship between Egypt, Saudi Arabia, and the United Arab Emirates as a very essential gathering in order to restore the Arab power in the regional powers? Balance. Right. Thank you for, the, for this question. Egypt, yes, is the bellwether in the region, absolutely. Uh, it's not for... Uh, it's not just senseless to say Dunya, which is mother of the world when you speak about Egypt. However, Egypt does not have the same clout as it had in Arab or in regional uh, uh, milieus. That's why today the idea of restoring the regional preponderance it had is one of the objectives. But it is mainly linked to stem investment in Egypt to get it out of its economic hardship that it is facing now. So, of course, you know, on the one hand, it has, as General Petreo said, a resurgent Russia. You have a more assertive China. It's in, in conflict with transforming U.S. Uh, U.S. is transforming its foreign policy. So Egypt today is facing real hard choices. It's not following the status quo that it had during the Sadat and Mubarak's time. So, um, but as I said, all this is, if it is, has a new approach also uh, to Syria and to Iran and the Russian and Turkish roles in these countries, uh, it is with the idea of developing an integrated strategy. Because Egypt is against military conflicts. It wants to have political resolution of conflicts, whether it is in Syria, in Libya, even with Iran. Iran, it is for de-escalation of the tension and not, you know, uh, an outward uh, provocation as the main threat to the Middle East. Thank you. While I was in uh, Sochi about 10 days ago, uh, President Sisi was meeting with President Vladimir Putin, and that was a very important meeting because they spoke about their strategic uh, uh, relationship. Can you 
address this point, uh, the, the value of building a strategic relationship with Russia while, you know, Egypt is a strategic ally with, of the United States. Uh, can you address this angle? And then I will ask you to reflect on how uh, this new relationship or this enhanced relationship is affecting the regional uh, conflicts and collaboration or cooperation on regional conflicts such as Syria. Well, you know, there is a warming up between, of relations uh, between Egypt and Russia since uh, 2015 or 16. And lately it has been very visible, particularly with the last visit of President uh, Sisi to Russia and the promise of Russia to furnish it with more arms and the nuclear plant and in many ways, you know, trying to take advantage of the tensions between Egypt and the United States where it feels it has been let down a bit. Uh, as for the uh, regional issues, Egypt is very much on the side of, of, of Moscow, whether it is on Syria or on Libya. Mm, it's very interesting. I really want to talk about the Syrian angle later. Why would Egypt be on the side of Moscow in Syria? That is fascinating. I'll get to that later. Please keep that thought in yes, your head. Uh, but I want to ask you about Libya, however. Uh, well, why are you on the side of Moscow in Libya? I think this side is not the U.S. side in Libya, or am I wrong? In Libya, Egypt is supporting General Haftar. Right. E Egypt always supports national armies and not militias, no matter how good they are. So this is its position. It is against conflict. It is for the safeguarding of the security and entity of these different countries, not their division, not their, you know, dispersal between ethnicities and tribalism and, uh, and, and sectarianism. Uh, thank you, Mona Makram Abed. I'll get back to you in a bit, but I'm going to move to Dr. Judith. Uh, no, sorry, I, I think I have the wrong person here. Um, actually, to Emily, Emily Estelle, mm -hmm. uh, American Enterprise Institute, a Critical Threats Project Senior Analyst and Africa Team, uh, head of the team. Welcome. Uh, so let's take it from where Mona Makram Abed left it. Uh, this, you know, this U.S. position uh, on one hand versus the, uh, the uh, Russian position in, in, in Libya, the, the, the regional players are also, one is on the side of Haftar, one is not. Explain to us how is this going to affect the future of Libya? Explain to us if this is a good thing to differ or a dangerous thing to do so. Thank you for the question. Uh, this actually gets to a point you brought up in your earlier conversation about France and Italy as well. So the picture regionally and internationally on Libya is that there are many different camps. You can't really even split it into two. Um, and so this is a very dangerous dynamic because we have multiple competing initiatives trying to bring together political resolution in Libya, bring together security cooperation, etc. cetera. Uh, but many of these efforts are actually working at cross purposes. So the problem is that uh, while there is so much discord between different external players on Libya, it severely decreases the likelihood that we would actually see uh, any internal cohesion in the country as well. So you think that the United States should be playing a particular uh, active role. Uh, describe the level of the U.S. role in Libya now, because I know the Russians are very active. Sure. Uh, so is there less of an interest by the U.S. in Libya? Is, it, is the U.S. leaving it to the Europeans? Should it leave it to the Europeans? Should the U.S. come in in a stronger way to say, you know what, something happened, something went so wrong in Libya, and it's everybody's fault, uh, even if the, if the Europeans are at fault more than the U.S.? Uh, it doesn't matter. We have, we have a, a state that is now suffering not only of the neglect it uh, uh, faced, it received after this whole uh, happiness about bringing down Muammar Gaddafi, but also by driving a lot of the fighters, ISIS fighters, Nusra fighters, out of Syria, and they're going to Libya. 
Can you address what the U.S. should do at this point? Absolutely. So to characterize the current level of U.S. involvement right now, I do think that there has been um, interest in having... Just, yes, go ahead. Uh, having other other countries take the lead on the Libya file. So uh, we've seen different different European countries trying to take the lead at different points, as an example. And so the, the U.S. policy is to uh, support the UNSMIL, the U.N. mission uh, towards political reconciliation in Libya, and also maintaining a limited counterterrorism mission, which has been focused on ISIS in particular um, in the aftermath of the CERT campaign. Uh, I think that the problem there is that I don't see the UN-led process leading towards the desired result at this time. Uh, we are coming up on a conference in Palermo, so there's a lot of motion to try and, and move forward progress on that front. Um, there have been announcements last night The two of the legislative bodies came to an agreement uh, about restructuring the presidential council, but I remain skeptical because we've seen different iterations of these you know, steps forward that don't actually reflect real progress. And part of that is because there isn't unity in the international community. So a role that I see um, that I think the U.S. could take could be as a convener um, trying to bring together unity among U.S. allies and partners so that we actually have uh, a Libya strategy that um, is not only correct on paper, but that all of these different regional international partners are actually adhering to. Well, why, why are you uh, hesitant about endorsing the UN-led uh, process? Because we've had several of them already at this point, I think. And I, I'm, I don't want to be pessimistic. Uh, I feel that the structure that, for example, the, the current UN envoy, Hassan Salama, laid out uh, most recently is a good structure, but the problem is it has not... Um, the steps have not been met according to plan. So I think the implementation is the problem, not the framework that was initially set. Um, thank you. William Lawrence, the George Washington University Elliott School of International Affairs, part-time professor of political science and international affairs, former Control Risks Middle East and North Africa Associate Director of uh, former also Center, uh, I'm reading this, former Center for the Study of Islam. It doesn't make sense. So forgive me, but you are someone who is quite knowledgeable about Tunisia and Libya. I think you just came back from the region. Yeah. Why don't we continue the conversation on Libya? I have a good friend in the audience here, uh, and she is a wonderful Libyan, Farida Al-Laghi, and uh, she would really uh, take me to task if I interrupt this thread of the conversation. <laughs> so I cannot upset Farida. Continue with Libya, if you don't mind. What is this Palermo process? Do you trust it? Do you not? Uh, what? What? Who, who, where were you? What are you bringing back? Um, so I'm having coffee with her on Sunday. <laughs> We're going to continue that conversation. Um, but uh, let me start by saying that, as you mentioned in your previous session, the Italian-French yeah, yes. Italian competition over Libya is not helping the situation. The uh, effort by the Italians to convene the Palermo meeting uh, started pretty much the day after the Paris meeting. Um, there was a lot of resentment in Libya uh, and among others about the decisions that came out of the Paris meeting. None of the Libyans spoke to each other at the Paris meeting and then an announcement was made about elections nobody wanted. Um, the uh, uh, elections won't be happening but the announcement hasn't been made yet. Um, and in the meantime, uh, the Italians have been organizing a meeting that the purposes of which seem to be changing every day, and while I was in Tunis for six days having Libya meetings, um, uh, sometimes hour to hour we would get different pictures of what was happening with the Palermo meeting. I was making a joke. I won't make it about Italians. I'll make it about Italian-Americans. Yeah? Okay. But uh, <laughs> sometimes you'll go over to someone's house for dinner, and the fight starts in the kitchen, and maybe you'll get the best pasta you've ever had in your life, and maybe there won't be a dinner served <laughs> when the fight starts. But even the Italian Minister of Defense, Minister of Interior, and Minister of Foreign Affairs don't agree on the Palermo. Um, and if you just permit one more minute, that came out of the, uh, the uh, UNSMIL meetings I had in Tunis. Um, the way Salome sees this is there are three options. Uh, the first option is a, a new constitution or constitutional direct, um, 
uh, declaration followed by elections, but that seems to be going nowhere. The second option is amendments to the 2015 Libya political agreement, and that seems to be going nowhere, although the announcement last night suggests that we may have another agreement that may go somewhere between the two houses of parliament, but that, again, may go nowhere. And then the third option is a, a national conference, um, and that would include 5, uh, 500 um, Libyans, uh, and this is what Salome will announce at Palermo on the 13th if the other two options fail, um, and he's looking for inputs on uh, not who should attend, but the mechanism for selecting who should attend. But I see a lot of this as Salome kind of throwing up his hands. He's very unpopular in Libya. Why? Uh, Why um, is uh, Hassan Salame unpopular in Libya? I think because he didn't follow his own really good plan. Um, to give you a, a small example of what's going on, the French convened their meeting without the UN blessing, and yet he was there seeming to blessing, bless it, but not really, and then sort of undermined it after the fact. His agenda for Palermo seems to be different from the Italian agenda for Palermo, which doesn't help. Um, so he's, you're saying he's, he's yeah. acting very French instead of very UN? <laughs> <laughs> Certainly not Italian. Um, but anyway, um, there, there seems to be um, a, a lot of um, uh, efforts at cross-purposes to get back to what uh, Emily uh, correctly said, and I agree with all of the comments she made. Um, and the Libyans who, if you look at polling, hold the United States in higher esteem than just about any other Arab country, are desperate for American inputs, and they're not getting it. And if you put me one more point on that, the Americans, like the UN, seem to be, in my mind, overly focused on economics mm. and sanctions and on security arrangements and dropping the ball on politics. Uh, thank you very much. I'm going to continue uh, down the line here, but we are coming back to this conversation uh, in, in, in a bit more detail. Uh, we have right now with us Ms. Moraya Kubia. She is the United States Institute of Peace Senior Advisor for Syria, Middle East, and North Africa. Um, she was formerly with USAID, responsible for Syria, among other things. And uh, I, I don't have very good notes here, so I'm going to blame the <laughs> Anyway, you'll introduce yourself a little better, please, uh, uh, when you speak. I'll give you that chance. To, I'll give you an extra minute. Oh. <laughs> uh, so, uh, Syria. Well, can, can I start with Idlib? Mm -hmm. So Idlib is, is the next big battle that is going to come to Syria. Idlib is a place that, uh, that uh, where, where, where President Donald Trump told the Russians, you know, hold it. Don't go so fast. Very unpopular. Setmona? Setmona? Yeah, Can we not, yeah. please? Um, so, so Idlib is, is a postponed battle, or do you agree? Is it a postponed battle to, that would still be very bloody, very costly? Uh, and when do you expect it to take place? Do you think the Russians need to, to do Idlib fast, the military at least? Uh, I, well, I think, yeah, I do think Idlib more likely than not is a postponed battle. My sense is, though, that the Russians have... Uh, are looking to create some breathing room, some breathing space, perhaps till the end of the year. And then I think the idea would be to undertake uh, uh, operations should they decide this is necessary, and it depends on what happens in these intervening two or three months, that would be more limited than what was initially feared. But that said, we're already seeing an uptick in tensions. Mm. Uh, we have the Syrian regime um, accusing Turkey of not upholding uh, its end of the bargain with respect to moving uh, militants, extremists, particularly those from Hayat Tahrir al-Sham, which, which is somewhat affiliated with al-Qaeda, out of this demilitarized zone. Uh, and you have the Russians, frankly, I think a little bit caught in the middle in terms of, I think the Russians are not interested in a massive military incursion at this time in Idlib. I think they're being pressured by Syria. Exactly right. Mm. And the question really is, so who has the upper hand in that relationship when it comes to these kinds of questions? So how costly? How, I mean, is it true that it's going to be a very bloody battle with mm. loads of lives and with the uh, cost of, of you know, uh, tell me, tell me, what, yeah. what do you know? It's a terrific question. I think what we have to understand about Idlib is the large number of civilians 
internally displaced civilians who have ended up in Idlib, displaced from other parts, other parts of Syria through these reconciliation, so-called reconciliation agreements, really surrender agreements. And so it's estimated that there are more than three million civilians in Idlib now. And the fear is that were there to be the sort of massive military operation that we have seen undertaken in other parts of Syria, that you would see massive displacement uh, on the order of 800,000 and upwards of civilians moving. By the way, many of those, at least half of them children. And this comes at a time when Turkey, in particular, Mm. has noted they already host 3.5 million Syrian refugees, the largest number of any country in the region, any country in the world, frankly, of Syrian refugees. And Turkey has said it's not willing to take on more refugees. So it raises this big humanitarian question. The UN has termed it potentially the greatest humanitarian catastrophe of the century, should it happen. What do you think the administration, the Trump administration, is going to continue to oppose it? Or do you think at one point the, the, uh, milit- the military in Russia is going to overrule and say, I can't wait, I've got to win this war, and Idlib is necessary to win it? I, look, so I think the Trump administration took a very strong position against this, and in particular warned against the use of chemical weapons, which of course the regime has used elsewhere. I don't think it's, I think it's the Trump administration, I think it's the international community writ large, and Europeans as well, who have said that that kind of humanitarian catastrophe in Idlib is untenable. The big question is, What leverage does the international community have? What can the U.S., Turkey, and others do in the event that this this sort of uh, incursion is undertaken? Let me take you to a larger question. What is it that the U.S. should do as a policy towards Syria at this point? I know there is a good team in place where everybody is talking about it. I know that the U.S. is staying uh, um, in, in, well, I think the U.S. has maybe about nine bases. I don't know, maybe more. But it doesn't seem to me that the U.S. is going to pull out and say goodbye, especially that, uh, that, that this is the oil-rich area. Mm-hmm. This is not, you know, that maybe the, um, the Russians will sort of dry out of money before, mm. uh, and, and their areas, uh, the areas they're controlling, then they, the areas in Syria controlled by the United States, uh, oil fields, mm-hmm. um, what, what should be the, what is it from your point of view that has not been done yet mm. yeah. by the administration other than, you know, of course, appointing a new team. As an advisor, think of yourself as an advisor, what would you say you must not lose sight of? So I think you must not lose sight of um, holding primarily the enduring defeat of ISIS as a key policy goal. Explain. Okay, so what that means is already we're, we're in a better position than we were before because, as you rightly point out, there's a reinvigorated U.S.-Syria policy. There's a new team in place. There's uh, guarantees that are being made that the relatively small U.S. force on the ground will stay for the foreseeable future. Those are two very important uh, shifts over the last several months. What needs to happen, though, I would argue, is in addition to that, there needs to be a a restoration of the funding, the stabilization funding Mm -hmm. that was to go into eastern Syria uh, in order to support the kinds of activities that are critical once areas are liberated from ISIS. You had General Pretorius speaking earlier today. He underscored that what we have learned is not, it's not simply the kinetic action. It's not simply the military action on the ground. It's what comes after that. It's, it's, it's engaging local populations, ensuring that you are addressing the grievances that gave rise to uh, extremist groups like ISIS in the first place. Um, thank you. Dr. Judith Yappe, hello, yes. how are you today? Fine. Good. I'm going to talk to you about Iraq. Absolutely. Because, uh, as you have heard, uh, you know, there is also a good team in Iraq. Uh, the level of the president, the prime minister, the speaker of the parliament. It's a nice team in town. But still people are holding their breath and saying, "Mm, is this going to be, you know, is this going to work? Do you think it's going to work? That's such a wonderful question because so often so little seems to have worked in Iraq. But maybe we're seeing an unusual 
uh, moments, or maybe we're seeing a, a change, a transformation to a more stable form of uh, participatory politics. I kind of hope that that's true, um, but I, th I think that um, there is a greater caution in what is in what is happening and how they are behaving. So I think there are reasons to hope for. Um, a better outlook, certainly than the kind of instability we've seen in the past, both in terms of internal and external relations. What lessons have we learned uh, from the past? What lessons should we learn from the past? Uh, uh, that in Iraq, uh, in particular, I am still focused with you on Iraq. There has been some mistakes after the invasion of Iraq, the occupation. Uh, what lessons have we learned? Well, I think we have learned that we have to be much more... Much ...more cautious in what we do in Iraq, and we're not welcome there in terms of forces and whatever, but I think that our non-military, our diplomatic and I think this even more important civilian interchange is, uh, is critical and developing those ties the Iraqis want to learn a lot more and about us and our education and all the advantages here and they want us to learn more about them. I'm very pos positive about all of this because I think we're seeing what may be a unique moment, but I think may not be. I hope so, because we need something positive uh, in that part you. of the world. Uh, <laughs> uh, and so, so what makes you positive? Is it the new team, or is it that the shift in, in the Trump administration's focus uh, well, against Iran? It's certainly um, a different kind of team there. I think more managerial focused, more what, perhaps success-oriented, but they are certainly much more interested in getting along both in, internally as well as externally. And I think you see a greater cooperation with inside. You see uh, greater reciprocity, especially, for example, in the, in the Kurdish region. Uh, statements about we are a part of Iraq, which you didn't hear before. Uh, I think there's, there's a much more, at least you're hearing a more positive or at least a, an indication of a willingness. This is a part of where we are and where we have to survive. Mm. And that's encouraging. Thank you. I, uh, I want to come back to you, William Lawrence. Uh, you also have been uh, very well versed in the Iraq file. Um, t tell me again about the Hashd al-Shabi. Who's going to help me translate that in English? What's the Hashd al-Shabi? Popular, Popular mobilization. Thank you. Thank you. It's been stuck in Arabic in my head. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so what about them? Uh, uh, what, what's going to become of them? Uh, what, what, what do you know about uh, the, the conversation yeah. that's taking place, and how, uh, how, how problematic are they going to be in the way uh, of, form, of, form, yeah. of, of finishing the formulation of the government? Well, let me first say that their popularity is maintained, and in, to some degree. Uh, we expected the election result to have maybe an even bigger outcome in, in their favor, but, but uh, that, that did not come to pass. Um, the realignment in Iraqi politics uh, away from Iran has been very interesting uh, uh, over the past year, and the various realignments going on in the formation of the government and the re-realignments leading to the non-confirmation administration, I mean, all of that uh, uh, plays into this uh, very interesting dynamic situation in Iraq. And I would say, uh, going forward, um, that three things are sure. Number one, the grievances of Iraqi youth, which we haven't mentioned yet, are dominating Iraqi politics right now. Number two, Hashid Shabi has the credibility of the recent you know, the military operations they were involved in that isn't going to go away. And number three, the political class, like the political class in Tunisia and some of the other countries I've been looking at, um, is so busy 
making its own arrangements and its own deals uh, to maintain power through political alliances, that they're often missing the larger picture. Um, and so that is – and Hashid Shabi, I think, is in many ways sort of outside of those political deals, um, but they will – I think they'll maintain their popularity going forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, uh, about the youth, the youth has been mentioned now. Egypt has a very substantial population of uh, – you'll give me the figures – uh, th- th- some of those younger generation are the ones who went out into to Tahrir Square and they wanted change. I mean, it was not only the work. In fact, they went down to ask for change probably, and you will correct me if this is wrong, please, to, to, to object to the status quo. But then, of course, they were, you know, then they were infiltrated by the Muslim Brotherhood. And, and, and the rest is history. We know what happened. So this, this does not put away the, the anger of the younger generation. This does not deal with their aspirations and disappointments. Tell us, give us the picture of Egypt. What's, how are they feeling? Are they disappointed? Are they scared? Are they looking forward? What do you think? Scared. Okay. Fear. What? Yeah? Right. No. I want okay, to tell good. you that it's not only the youth that participated in Tahrir, but it is all of Egypt, including me. So, what I want to say is that the euphoria was very big. The expectations was, were over. There was over-expectation. So, of course, the disillusion is big also. But that doesn't mean that the youth is not there or that the youth has given up. No, they are there. We have a very important cadres, uh, young cadres today, who are setting aside a lot of these former ideologies, secularism, uh, uh, sectarianism, etc. They're looking forward. They think that they have everything to compete with the same generation abroad, in the West. Mm -hmm. And that's what they want. And that's what they want to get at, and they will, I think. Because the will is there. Of course, the general uh, uh, will is not particularly there to support them and to encourage young leaders to be in, 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 in leading positions, but they are there and they're pushing forward and I think they will arrive. You know, I did use the word fear to provoke you because I knew you'd get right back at me. <laughs> so, so listen, uh, I have, when I was in Egypt only about a year ago, I think, uh, I sensed there was a, a good amount of euphoria about the potential of Egypt because of uh, E&I at that point, any, the Italian uh, 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 petroleum, discovery. The, the big discovery, it's like the biggest, well, tell us, why should I say it, tell, tell what was this. The gas, the gas discovery today, which will make Egypt um, self-sufficient and maybe exporter, and so it's giving a lot of hope because, first of all, it will need uh, manpower, and manpower is there. It will need to, to, to provide jobs. Not only Mr. Trump provides jobs, we too can provide jobs. And uh, so there is hope. There is hope that at the end of, you know, that at the end of the tunnel, there is hope. On the other hand, the level of poverty, the level of uh, disappointment, you know, the life of the poor man, or the poor woman for that matter, is, is very painful in Egypt still. Is this because there is no long-term plan, or is this a natural consequence to a plan that is to be implemented later? You know, what is very interesting is that this frustration has given rise to a rise in fertility. Oh. Yeah. It's not which good. That's not good for Egypt. Yeah, no, which we didn't need. <laughs> you don't so, need that. Uh, whereas we had overpopulation, but at one point it reached 2.5, it is now reaching 3.5. Ouch. Because most of the women are out of a job in the public sector. Mm-hmm. And this is very, very serious. Of course, the private sector don't take them because they ask for maternal leave and for other advantages. So this is how they have fallen back on that, is the fertility rise. Mm-hmm. And I don't think the government is taking this seriously enough as a ticking bomb. It is a ticking bomb. Absolutely, absolutely. So, and what I just said in your last meeting 
What women need today is a voice and a job. You know, That's it. She's, uh, uh, Mona Makrama is referring to my last meeting, uh, which is the Beirut Institute Summit in Abu Dhabi, that she honored us with her presence. And what I did at that summit, I'm very proud of doing that. I give women one minute each to get on the stage and say in one minute, what's the bottom line? What is it that they should hear us saying? And uh, Farida Allagi was one of, she's on the advisory board. Uh, and Mona Makrama and the messages are really potent because it is a one minute uh, and people remember it. So, um, Emily, Egypt's role in Libya, how essential is it? Is, 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 and is it only Egypt, Libya, or, uh, or is this going to be reflecting on, on the whole of North Africa? Does Egypt have a leading role on Libya in North Africa altogether, or is this bilateral? Sure. I, I think Egypt does have a special set of interests in Libya based on historical relationships, based on very obvious interests because of proximity. Uh, and so when I look at the Egyptian involvement in Libya, I see a lot of different reasons for it. There are you know, economic concerns, um, political concerns related to what kind of leadership um, the Egyptian government would like to see in Libya. There are very obvious security concerns because of the quite real um, terrorist threat inside of Libya that has, has impacted Egypt as well. Um, I agree with the issue you raised that there is also a regional picture, so the question of maybe Egypt and Algeria and who is the dominant power across North Africa, I think uh, Egypt has been far more involved, at least more visibly, in, in Libya than Algeria has. Um, there's also the larger picture of regional dynamics, so the closer relationship between uh, Egypt and the UAE has also played out mm -hmm. uh, inside of Libya, and also the closer Egyptian-Russian relationship has been strengthened by cooperation uh, inside of Libya as well. So Libya for Egypt is a priority on, on some things, but it's also a way to kind of build on some of these other relationships that are independent priorities. So, so let's go back to the fact that Egypt chose, if I'm not mistaken in paraphrasing what Mona uh, Makram Abed said, to take, you know, to take the side of Russia in, in uh, Libya, plus put alongside the traditional rivalries between uh, Egypt and Algeria. Mm -hmm. uh, plus, uh, uh, you know, of course, you know, you always have to think Egypt and Turkey. This is the one thing that, you know, the Muslim Brotherhood, big rivalry divide, divide rather. So if you put all of this together, do you think Egypt is on the right track in the way it's handling the Libya dossier? It's a complicated question. I think actually... Well, that's our job here, too. <laughs> I actually think that... Um, so, so one of my concerns with the Egyptian involvement initially is that there are some Libyan groups, particularly those um, factions identified with political Islam, that were going to be excluded from political processes that they maybe needed to be a part of. Um, this is groups that completely nonviolent, like political groups that I think need to be part of the process that were excluded by hearing the rhetoric from um, Haftar and, and that kind of wing. But I do actually think that um, the Egyptian handling of the situation has been, has been increasingly pragmatic. So looking at um, the security, the army unification talks that, that Cairo has hosted, I think that has been, of the many different processes happening in Libya, um, that's been an example of, of um, some coming together from different Libyan groups that aren't usually on the same side. Mm. Uh, so I'm heartened by that um, as, a, as a, I think a positive example of, of progress. Uh, before I leave this angle, Muna Mahbed, I thought that the uh, uh, relationship between Egypt and the United Arab Emirates is, is one of alliance almost, you know. Absolutely. Uh, but then, but then I, are you on different, uh, where are you in, in, in the, in, on Libya? Together. Uh, together. On Libya, we are not on the same track. Okay, tell us. Mm -hmm. uh, but the trilateral relationship between Egypt, the UAE, and Saudi is working, but with differences in opinion mm. and differences in, in factions. Who are you supporting? Egypt has as its main uh, objective political reconciliation between the different factions, keeping the entity of the state and not divi dividing the state into different statelets, mm -hmm. as is the plan 
for Syria, eventually for Libya, I don't know, but <clears throat> that is really avoiding military conflicts, avoiding boots on the ground. This is it. Syria, do you think that this is the plan, to divide it into three sections, just like what you heard right now, Mona Yakubia? The, the plan by the international community or by the Arab world? Or who, uh, no, look, I'm she's, talking about Egypt's yeah. policy. She's saying, she's projecting that the plan, who, you know, the, you know uh, the, the, the ghost, the Casper's plan, mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, it's so that uh, Egypt, I mean, excuse me, so that Syria becomes de facto divided into three different areas, one controlled by the, by the Russians, one controlled by the U.S., and one by Turkey and the Central. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, my, again, I, I wouldn't want to differ too much with Dr. Muna. My, my understanding, first of all, let's, let's step back one moment. I think Egypt's engagement in Syria relative to others has been minimal, has been far less than clearly, for example, Turkey, Israel, others that are right on the border. Um, Egypt has also played an important role in terms of hosting uh, Syrian opposition and trying to help uh, pull together Syrian opposition in order to be better. And Ghouta. Yes, okay. Ghouta. Mm. But my understanding of Egypt is more as a status quo power that is, is interested, is not interested in seeing states like Syria fragment into many different pieces and certainly not see the resurgence in Syria or the strengthening in Syria of the Muslim Brotherhood, of mm -hmm. Islamist factions, etc. So I, I would sort of see Egypt as looking to, to the extent that it can, and again, I can't underscore enough that its role in Syria is far less influential than other regional players. Not, not, it's not going to stay like this, because apparently, uh, from what I, uh, when I followed the news of the meeting between President Sisi and President Putin, and, and President Putin himself actually at the meeting when he came to meet us, and I asked him the question about Egypt, and he went on for quite a long time uh, speaking about, you know, how strength in this relationship is going to be. In fact, they had military exercises together. Uh, but he said something that they, they were essential on Syria. Mm -hmm. That I, from what I understood uh, later on is that uh, uh, Egypt is going to try to rehabilitate uh, the regime of Bashar al-Assad himself and his regime in the Arab League, for example, okay. Okay. in Syria. Right. So that's not small. That's a big, it's a big step that right. Egypt is expecting. Plus, of course, the opposition. But that's part there is of the, an Egyptian opposition. So, but that, to me, what you just said, actually, is would underscore this notion of Egypt as looking to restore the status quo in the region, looking to looking to to see a stable Syria, albeit under Bashar al-Assad, that is actually returned to the Arab fold, uh, in which militias and others are are neutralized, and again, certainly Islamist militias. Uh, are, are neutralized. I, what do you think of that? Is that doable at all? Is this something that... I think we're a long way from that. And certainly rehabilitating Bashar al-Assad is not something the international community would, would be supportive of. If the Arab League decides to do that, that's the Arab League's decision, but I'm not, so that certainly would not be supported by the international community. Tell me, tell me where is this, where is this uh, Syrian civil war at right now? Is it at, what is it? Is it an end game? Is it at the end of the game? Or is it at uh, protracted? So, uh, in, in my view, I mean, we're now nearly eight years into the civil war. Um, I think we're actually at the most dangerous stage of the conflict. Right. And, and I say that for two reasons. One is because I think uh, the Syrian civil war, the initial conflict that kicked all of this off between Assad and those who sought to unseat him, that I think is entering uh, an endgame stage. Uh, unfortunately, like it or not, it seems clear that at least for the short to medium term, the Assad regime will prevail. But I think we are ent we're entering a very protracted and messy endgame. And I say that because Assad will prevail, but it's because of the help, the, s the significant support of Russia, but also Iran. And that is really, in, in some ways, I think Iran's military entrenchment in Syria is unprecedented and has really, I think, thrown up in the air the rules of the game that had pertained prior to the uprising taking place. So do you, words, sure, yeah. of course. You're not talking at all about the European Union, hmm. which is really the main supporter of Syria today, or the only last resort supporter of Syria. What do you say to that? 
Uh, I'm not so, again, it depends on how you define support, but I think the U.S. has been, played a huge role in terms of providing humanitarian assistance. The U.S. is on the ground in Syria, playing a very important role. They've led the counter-ISIS coalition. I mean, the problem with Syria is it's so complex. I know. There are so many layers to the conflict. I think the EU has played a role in terms of uh, wanting to, in particular, play a strong role in supporting the Geneva mm. uh, peace process. But uh, unfortunately, that process has, has more or less stagnated. We'll see what happens with a new special envoy just announced, I believe, yeah. today. Okay, but is there going to be a political solution in, in Syria? I mean, I don't really know what's the roadmap to that. Because you have, you have already uh, a problem with the continued presence of Iranian troops and, uh, and, their, uh, and their allies in Syria. And it seems that the Russians are not willing to just say, let's help the U.S. get them out. Or so, willing or able. Or, yeah. You know, there's, it's, it's a question of both, yeah. will and, and the capacity to do so. Mm. And I do think that, that we are at a very dangerous moment because, again, Iran is entrenched in ways it's never been before, right on Israel's border. And we've already seen the Israelis responding to this, mm -hmm. uh, to this threat. The Israelis have, by their own admission, undertaken 200 attacks against Iranian targets in Syria over the past two years. Mm. What's worrisome is the extent to which this escalation in tensions spirals out of control. But it seems that Israel really got a very good guarantor for its own interests in Syria, mm. Russia. Uh, secured uh, for, for Israel the, 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 a huge chunk of land uh, in the Golan Heights. And it seems that, you know, the Israelis think that you, you ain't going to talk about that again. This is I, mine, is the way they're thinking well, about it, that, they, that they've been given the Golan Heights. Until the Russian surveillance plane was shot down, which, which is an important, I think, actually, I think it's an important event because mm. the Russians... Um, now, of course, it wasn't the Israelis that shot the plane down. It was the Syrians who accidentally shot the plane down. But the, but the Russians have, have accused Israel of, uh, of, of being more reckless in their, in their incursions into Syria and Syrian airspace. And so as a, as a result, provided now more sophisticated air defense systems to Syria. Yes. The SA-300. Yeah. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And so um, – and also, my understanding from, from Russians is that they are, they are um, concerned about, about Israeli conduct in, in Syria. Now, where does, where does this go, I think, is, a, is another question. But I think we're at a moment where, it's, where there's, some, there's, uh, there's some ambiguity and, and, in some ways, dangerous ambiguity. You think the Iranians would pull out? No. So what happens then? It's a great question. I mean, I think, I think the Iranians, are, they've made quite, a, quite an investment in Syria. Uh, the other question is how intertwined are the Iranians already into the Syrian military and security apparatus? To what extent is this uh, going to be extremely difficult to disentangle? I mean, my sense is that it will be very, very difficult to eject Iran from Syria. Even after the sanctions weaken the Iranian economy, even after the sanctions uh, have their impact as the Trump administration hopes they would? It's a good question. I mean, again, we, it depends on what happens. There are some that say this will, this, the Iranians are overstretched and will, will be forced to pull back. But there's another argument that's leveled that says the extent to which Iran feels threatened, the extent to which these sanctions threaten Iran in terms of its, in an existential way, its regime, that actually may compel them to dig their heels in even deeper into places like Syria and elsewhere in the region. So I'm going to sort of go to an area where we were told that it was the good story after the uh, Arab Spring, the good place. It's uh, just to change the subject of depressing <laughs> things in Syria. So can we speak about Tunisia? How is it? How is it going? Um, if you ask most Tunisians badly, um, if you ask most uh, close watchers of Tunisia um, it, they're hanging in there. Um, it was amazing. I was in Tunisia again the past six days, just flew in early this morning, and the bomb went off just down the street from my hotel, and 
I didn't see any Tunisian other than those literally within the bomb blast area who changed their routine, who had the least. And there was a kind of resilience there. Maybe it's a blasé resilience, maybe it's mm. what. But the, the resilience, the, the way in which Tunisians just brushed off the attack and moved on with their lives um, uh, means here's a population that's weathered a lot of turbulence. And for all the complaining we have heard, are hearing and will be hearing from Tunisians about the lack of progress uh, in, in any number of areas, they are resilient and they're going to hang on. And when you push Tunisians on their complaining, that's where they end up, yes, we're going to defend this democracy, we're going to make this work. So why do you think, uh, why do they think, the Tunisians, that it's going badly? Those who, says, those who say it's going badly, what yeah. does that mean? What do they point out to? So... There are many layers of complaints here, but the, the, the largest complaint is most Tunisian youth who do not vote in elections, who supported the revolution, got no div- dividend from the revolution. And so that's causing, for example, the huge um, uh, protests and riots last January around austerity measures, uh, measures encouraged by the IMF, and a, and a general um, uh, uh, malaise slash anger slash willingness to mobilize and even migrations way up. The NGOs are reporting uh, more Tunisians crossing the Med going north, uh, numbers we haven't seen in a couple of years now. So there's a, there's a great deal of angst and frustration among youth. Uh, in terms of um, uh, the marginal areas, uh, uh, there's a new report out, 2018, on increased recruiting for ISIS domestically. Mm-hmm. Our main concern this year were for returning foreign fighters. A lot of them returned from Syria and Iraq to Libya and didn't even end up coming back to Tunisia. And those who came back, um, there weren't large numbers and they were handled relatively well, but we have much larger numbers, and again, not the numbers we saw from 2011 to 13, but much larger numbers, particularly from the West, who are still joining ISIS for the same socioeconomic reasons and frustration with the what government the that numbers? we saw What are before. the numbers on Tunisia? Well, the Tunisians sent the largest number of fighters uh, to Iraq and Syria, s- sent the largest number of fighters to the Libyan conflict, um, and uh, a lot of this was just post-revolutionary elan and wanting to go topple dictators as they had done in their own country. Um, some very inspired by Islamic themes, most of them not. Um, increasingly, over time, we've seen that a lot of um, radical extremists are actually economically motivated, so there's that piece of it. So, um, yeah. so the Jasmine Revolution, you yeah. think this was like a, the, it inspired, so to speak, the Tunisians to go be fighters in, 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 in Syria and Iraq Certainly. with ISIS? Yeah, oh, absolutely. Oh, a lot of Tunisians not- went... Uh, there was the famous case that BBC covered of the e-jihadist in a wheelchair. So it was a Tunisian uh, uh, who went to uh, Syria to, to engage in the, the, the online jihad uh, in a wheelchair, and he got there, and ISIS decided he was going to be a suicide bomber. So then he called his family to come rescue him in, uh, in Syria. They came, wheeled him out to Syria, back to, um, to Tunisia, and when he got back, his family was really frustrated because he couldn't find a job and he was looking for another jihad to join, and they were complaining to BBC mm-hmm. international authorities, like, he hasn't found his new jihad. I mean, it's, 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 it's a, a, a desire among young people to have valuable lives and to be, have meaningful lives, and whether it's toppling dictators or, or making revolutions or whatever, I mean, this is what they're looking for. Um, and just to fast forward to um, a solution, <laughs> um, I've been advocating for seven years now, and it's starting to catch on, um, uh, of, a, of a revolutionary national service in Tunisia, putting the, the million or so unemployed university graduates in Tunisia who are major players in the revolution to work Um, doing projects, uh, sort of like Peace Corps volunteers around Tunisia, and they'd be very willing. And the Tunisian government really hasn't uh, uh, come to that level of understanding of of solutions for their own uh, economic and socioeconomic problems. That's a a good project to take beyond. uh, I just want to point out that these problems are not unique to that region. There are fighters returning to Iraq. What do you do with them? People who have experienced all these activities abroad, and now they're coming back, and the Iraqis don't know what to do with it, what, what, what will they do, what will they have learned, what are they going to bring back with them. Um, I think there's problems with cross-border incursions. We haven't talked about that's going on all the time. Turkish incursions, there's problems on that side. And uh, the instabilities that we've talked about, for example, Syria. All of these are things that have to be watched and are worried about. But these are So these are not isolated to just one area, but they're all sort of 
streaming in from all sides, and Iraq is certainly experiencing all that. Yeah. So, so, so you think that program that uh, William was talking, Dr. Lawrence William, yeah. uh, was talking about, uh, you think that is a good program? To Which program is that? Just a kind of national service uh, to give pe- young people things to do that are meaningful. Well, I think the Iraqis have had some yeah. kind of national yeah. service. I don't think that's yeah. been quite a question. Yeah. Uh, women have been able to find jobs in Iraq. Yeah. It's not like a lot of the countries where women have had a lot of, you know, especially young have had trouble getting positions. Yeah. So that's, yeah. That is a bit different. Yeah. Emily, you know, it seems to me that, you know, Libya really got a bad deal. Uh, I think Libyans would agree. Yeah, <laughs> come closer to the mic. Yeah, yeah you think Libya? Yeah, I mean, I think, yes, I think Libyans would agree. There's, if you look at polling, there's um, increasing nostalgia for the Gaddafi days, which is certainly not nostalgia for Gaddafi himself, but if you look at people's standard of living um, and just the way the country has gone, then certainly it makes sense that people are, are looking backwards now because they aren't happy with how things have turned out. So uh, so we, I want to I engage both of you, Mona and uh, Emily, on, in, in this. So we have right now still the ISIS and Nusra uh, situation in Syria unfolding. Uh, we don't know where the fighters are going to go. It seems that the Turks are saying, well, they're not going to come to me. I, you know, I, I've had enough of them. And, uh, well, certainly in Lebanon, we don't need them. I don't hope they never make their way there. Uh, it seems that they're just ending up in, you know, gathering in Libya. So what on earth? Who's helping the Libyans? Uh, I mean, is, tell me, tell me, what do you know about through engagement by the international community on this priority. It's a matter of priority. What do you mean? They're just like, you know, bring, bring it on. It seems that, you know, Libya is going to be the place, that the, the nation for, for, for all these uh, have been fighters, uh, ISIS, Nusra, etc. I share the same concern. So to, to return back to what General Petraeus said also, when there's ungoverned space, then it's an opportunity for um, kind of all sorts of bad actors to use it. So we're talking about extremists in this case, but in the case of southern Libya, it's those groups, uh, ISIS al-Qaeda, but it's also the human trafficking and the arms and drug smuggling and all of these other things um, in one kind of big interconnected nexus. And so I don't think the inter- international community has addressed this sufficiently. We already talked about the, the political process in Libya is supposed to establish a central authority that can then govern the territory. But as we've both already discussed, we're a long way off from solving that problem. So there, there have been some kind of more standalone measures designed to deal with this problem of Libya's south. Um, so, there, for example, UN sanctions targeting uh, human traffickers in June, I think, were actually an interesting step that um, got some reaction. But there is this whole problem set of, you know, even if you get everyone in Tripoli and Benghazi on the same page, the south is where a lot of this is happening, and that's where the big ungoverned space is. We don't have a solution. It's like what, what, it's like what uh, Saif al-Islam Qadhafi warned us. He said that's going to happen. Yeah, I mean, Was I, he I right? think... I think it was already happening to a certain extent, and then um, the end of the Gaddafi regime really took the lid off of it. Um, but I do think that that nexus area, southern Libya, and then looking at northern Mali and looking at northern Niger is a really critical place, um, which is going to start taking us out of the, the Arab world. But um, as far as some of this criminality and extremism, that's really a core area where a lot of these problems are are together. Uh, and to tie back into the issue of, of foreign fighters, we've talked about fighters returning from Iraq and Syria to other places. But what's also interesting is that uh, ISIS in Libya sparked a mobilization of African, sub-Saharan African jihadists yeah. leaving their home countries uh, in an unpre- unprecedented way. So the question of where they go next, if they return to the places they came from uh, and start additional problems, that's also a, kind of a secondary mm-hmm. problem mm-hmm. to consider. I'd like one more complication sure. here, which is that at least for, in Iraq... Um, there's a few jobs, for example, in the Kurdish area. A lot of Kurds are going south, but they don't have long, they don't have Arabic. Mm. So that adds to the complicated socioeconomic picture of, of you know, labor force on the move, but lacking the skills which allow them to integrate into the southern society. So I'm going to take advantage of where we are and uh, conclude in the following way. I'm going to give you, I'm going to go to each of you to think for, you know, give me, what, what does Iraq look like? For the next 10 years, from your point of view, what Iraq do you see coming? And I'm going to go down the line just to think, 
what is what do you foresee in a realistic way, not in a dreamy way, and it's not what we wish for them. What does it look like? What does uh, Iraq look like in 10 years? Well, I think it's, it, it wants to look, or the, the goal is integration. But the problem is uh, economic resources are not spread out equally. The oil and energy are in one area, but the populations are in other areas. And how you get that population to integrate and mix and to move back and forth is a problem. And so I think it needs to work on that. And I think that what, at least what you see for the, the picture for the moment is uh, populations want to work on that integration. Whether that works in the long term, I don't know. It's an interesting experiment, I think, for the Iraqis to work on. Thank you, Judith. Mona, what does Syria look like? I'm glad I'm not last because I I don't think you want to end on the very disparaging (laughs) note I'm about to to make, which is essentially, I mean, I think, exactly, I think think Syria is a a generation-long conflict that is still evolving. I think we are going to see, while the regime may have quote-unquote won, it's a Pyrrhic victory at best. Uh, This is a country that is going to remain fractured, and violent, uh, run with with warlords running around and mafias, with spheres of influence that are um, directed by various regional powers. And let's not forget, most importantly, the Syrian people themselves, the suffering of Syrian civilians, the massive levels of displacement, uh, and uh, unfortunately, uh, potentially a lost generation of Syrian children who have suffered through unspeakable violence and trauma. About uh, the spillover uh, of the Syrian situation, can you address, since you spoke of the refugees, and sure. uh, could you, can you address what impact, what Lebanon, what, what does Lebanon look like for the 10 years? Wow. I mean, I'm glad, you, I'm glad you asked that question, because I think Lebanon is often lost in this equation. Mm-hmm. Lebanon hosts the highest number of refugees per capita in the world. This is something when I was at AID, we worked on intensely. Um, Lebanon has borne an enormous burden in terms of the numbers of Syrian refugees there in the country. At the same time, unfortunately, Lebanon also has, as you know, pre-existing issues, whether it's poor governance, corruption, which is now at unprecedented levels, uh, an economy that is on the verge of collapse, one of the highest uh, debt level, debt-to-GDP ratios in the world. I think it's the third highest. So Lebanon faces enormous challenges, but at the same time, and my roots are Lebanese as well, um, I think there is an incredible energy um, and entrepreneurial spirit in the Lebanese people. The question is to what extent they can get their governance issues right. They can address these corruption issues, and only then, I think, is the international community going to be willing to come in with the kinds of assistance that's needed. So I think for Lebanon, it's a, it's a, it's a big question mark what it looks like in 10 years. Thank you, Mona. Emily, what does Libya look like in 10 years? I think, well, I see a, a pessimistic version and an, an optimistic version. I think if we continue on current trajectory, I expect that Libya will remain unstable, possibly in in ways different than it has previously. So I expect more of these local conflicts or, you know, conflicts city by city or region by region in Libya rather than maybe a full-fledged war more akin to what we saw in, in, say, 2014. Um, But certainly the same problem with ungoverned spaces and um, criminality, instability, and kind of the occasional terrorist problem that the West will come in and try and deal with periodically but not actually fix. That is unfortunately what what I see happening. I am hopeful, though, that I think this problem is very fixable if Libyan leaders and the international community come together. Um, and I do think that there is some frustration with how long this has gone on. So I'm hopeful that the trajectory will change and actually um, head toward progress within that time frame. William, uh, how does uh, the North Africa region, <laughs> short of Egypt, because I want to leave that to Mona Makram Abed. Yeah. Um, so what, what does Tunisia, Libya, North Africa look like? What does Tunisia look like? Is it going to still be a pretty story or is it going to be a very ugly story because it is going to be... Uh, in, in, in Kahoot, if you will, or in uh, a recipient of what happens in Libya? It's going to be a mixed story, Tunisia. Um, Morocco, Algeria, and Tunisia 
are all over 10,000 what we call micro-protests a year now. And so the trend is away from big conflicts to small conflicts. Um, and these micro-protests um, are increasing in Tunisia. They've doubled over the last three years, and we're going to have more and more and more of that. The externalities of that are the question mark. What's the spillover? When do things get really big? When do they threaten uh, the big uh, macro-political um, issues? I think co- uh, politics will remain complicated. Economic interventions will be insufficient. And then the big question is to what degree the um, Tunisians can keep the lid on security threats. And on that... All three, in some ways, so far so good. They're, they're maintaining a hold. Mm-hmm. If I can add one sentence on Libya, let me just add, sure. in total agreement with Emily, um, that I'd like to add an if-then. <laughs> if the U.S. continues to remain unengaged in Libya, I predict the pessimistic version of the scenario. Mm. If the U.S. puts in even a modicum of effort, as the Libyans are sort of screaming out, asking the the Americans to help out with this intra-European rivalry, which is unhelpful right now, if the U.S. steps up diplomatically and in other ways and starts paying attention to politics and not just economics and security, um, uh, Libya is the easiest conflict to fix of the three over Yemen and Syria. Libya is fixable. It's going to take an American involvement. I agree, I agree wholeheartedly. I yeah. agree, too. Yeah. Uh, I say your full name because I have two monads. <laughs> so that's why I decided to go uh. with your full name. Uh, Egypt, Egypt, Dunya. what's it going to look like in 10 years? Beautiful. <laughs> Do you care to elaborate? Promising, <laughs> promising country, as we just said before. The mega projects that we are all criticizing now will bring its fruition by, now, by then. Jobs will be found. Uh, every day there is a new discovery in the Nile of the artifacts. We have a new museum. I invite you to come all to Egypt. You'll see by yourself the, uh, the, the progress that is being done, except for one thing. We will be 120 million by then. <laughs> that, is, that is something to think about. I invite you to come to Beirut. Uh, so since the invitations are out, uh, actually either New York or Beirut, because I live in both places, but I came from the region now. Uh, and since this is uh, where we are going to be uh, leaving this podium, it will be, this is the last panel, and Dr. Uh, Jean-Duc Anthony is going to be coming to give the last word. I want to thank... This, uh, the organizers uh, of everything, for everything they've done, but especially for this session that Asma played a very big role in making sure that we communicated and, and we were on the same page in understanding how to make it nice and smooth and different rather than delivering speeches. I want to thank Pat Messino. Uh, oh, he's an amazing person and he's been really, really great in organizing this. This is for you. And we thank an excellent moderator, intelligent, incisive, and agreeable. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs)